If you're anything like me, you're now hunting for the record button. <laughs> I, I found it. <laughs> I might pause and stop. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's another uh, conversation with Agility by Nature. And today I'm very, very pleased to be joined by, well, I think you'd call yourself the Boss Bear, but I know you better as Chris Pitts of Thirsty Bear. Hi, hi Chris. How are you? I am very well, thank you. It's nice to be here. It's good <laughs> nice to, to have you. And uh, obviously we're in lockdown. Uh, we can guess that the company named Thirsty Bear, you might like the occasional real ale or two. Brewing beer on coding? D- difficult in lockdown, I guess. Um, it's not too bad. I mean, my local pub's now opened. I've done a little application for them so that they can actually log people in and out. Um, so, yes, it, it, it's going quite well at the moment. Have you got a tracking app up already, Chris? Of course I have. <laughs> I believe the company needs one. So, Chris, um, you have been doing Agile-like stuff since before the manifesto, the Agile manifesto. Um, and you, you and I met, uh, we worked a bit at Home Office and uh, Ordnance Survey, but you've been at B Sky B, Carphone Warehouse, Ford, Specsavers, Dunelm, you're a chart engineer. And what I like about you is, you know, a lot of people I talk to, it's about process and, you know, process is hard and how can we get people to work together. But you've just stayed super faithful to that hard stuff, coding, the code and the working of code and being a developer. And, and I like that because I think we sometimes forget how hard that is, <laughs> that coding stuff. Oh, yes. Um, I've always stayed close to the coding because that's where I started. Um, Many, many years ago, sort of the 1800s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you start straight at Agile coding or did you start coding and then evolve into Agile? <laughs> um, no, no, no. I was extremely unagile originally. Um, started coding on ZX Spectrums all those years ago. Wow. Um, started professionally when I left university in 1885-ish. Yeah, I remember those years. Yes. Um, and I started off writing specifications and writing software to fit the specification um, for ASICs, sort of chip design. Yeah. That rapidly turned into software development um, in the actual chip design. Um, and I kind of fell out of that into British Telecom Research Labs. And that's where things start to get interesting because because they were were research projects, you couldn't specify them um, because we didn't know what was possible. And so gradually my coding style evolved to cope with that. Um, I was working with some great senior engineers at the time on testing uh, telephone exchanges. And basically, we, we were just, as exchanges were breaking in certain ways, we were just adding to the code. And so all our specifications were moving. And so we just coped with it, and we tended to document it fully once everything had been done. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I see the roots in agility come from, right. just coping with this massive amount of churn and change that's coming through. Um, but always very down low with the code, actually getting things done. And again, we were very delivery focused. We had to get something out the door. I'm not gonna say every week, I'm not gonna say every two weeks, it was extremely unstructured, but we were focused on producing something specific. And 
everything kind of evolved from there. Um, the other interesting aspect that kind of started to pull all this together was, I suppose, in the mid-90s, we were going through the ISO 9001 ticket um, approvals. Mm, yeah. Um, people were writing reams. No, no joke, they were writing manuals on how they work, three, four, five, six inches of documentation and volumes of this stuff. And my department started to do that. And I took it as a challenge to shrink it down to the bare minimum. And ours was the smallest quality system the company had at the time. Yeah. And from that came the, let's just pull in what we need. Let's just do what we need to do now. Let's just get feedback on how it's going. And already you can start to see the bare bones that might possibly be described as agile, maybe down a dark alleyway at night <laughs> with poor eyesight. But you can see see where it's come from. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then, then in 2000, I met a very interesting guy called um, Matt Stevens. Right. Matt Stevens wrote a book called um, XP Refactored, The Case Against XP. And he introduced me to XP, Green oh. Programming. We were working a little little startup together, and he hate he hated XP. It really did. But he <laughs> told me all the way it broke, all the ways it was bad. And I realised he was actually explaining to me all the things you have to focus on to make it work. Right. Okay. And everything else is history, because I just took that advice to stay away from XP because of this, 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 focused on these key failure points, fixed them, and suddenly it works. So thank you, Matt. <laughs> thank you, Matt, if you're listening. <laughs> so what, what a great story. I mean, I love the fact that you would you go in one day and then they just took the spec away and you had to move incrementally. And I like yeah. um, and particularly when perhaps we might talk about user stories lately, uh, later on, because I find them quite difficult, you know, the granularity and the effort to craft these perfect user stories. You think, can we just take them away? Should we just take the stories away? What do you think? Oh, take away the stories. No, absolutely not. Uh, the whole thing about software is... Have I gone too be, magical? <laughs> it, it's got to be user-focused. Yes. Um, if it's not used by a user, it's not used, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. It might be buried, that user interaction might be buried or way, way downstream. But ultimately, all software is used by people. Yeah, yeah. It is always used by the person. And so you've got to focus on what that person wants. And maybe the first thing you need to do is find out who they are. Yeah. The number of projects I've, I have worked on where I've said, okay, who's your customer? Well, I don't know. Um, let's go and find them, shall we? <laughs> and I, I think that's a key to good user stories. You know, find the human. Yeah. Find that interaction. Find out what they're trying to do. And if you do that, things tend to line up. The, the ducks start to line up in a row, and you just knock them down one at a time. Yeah. Until it does what you need. Do you think even now, though, um, I mean, I mean, there's been more work in the UX and the UAI um, world, design sprints and all that good stuff. Do you still think that the developers are still not quite close enough to the customers? There's still things between the developer and real people really using 
the good stuff. I wonder sometimes about the product owner as well, who's sort of jetted in from God knows where to come. I do feel for product owners, I truly do. What a lovely question. Um, that's actually a very difficult one. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give, give an opinion, um, and I'm sure people will disagree and widely agree. There'll be, there's a whole range of views here. I don't believe the developers are close enough to the customer yet. Um, they still got, industry in general uses the concept of proxy customer. Now, sometimes it's absolutely necessary, but it's not always. Uh, and that's what a product owner is. A product owner is a proxy customer. And unless they are very, very customer focused themselves, they become the barrier they start to lead teams down the wrong direction. So it, it's, it's a extremely difficult job, I agree, but the best product owners are actually talking to the customer and basically they are learning how to think like a customer. One particular job that I had was a large um, opticians chain, high street opticians chain. Yeah. I was working with a lovely lady called Jax, I think you know her. Oh yes, and she, yeah, yeah. And she was acting as product owner, and she was learning to be an optician, helped by her end customers. And she had a um, a group of opticians who were helping us develop this software. And she was kind of the funnel, and she was pulling in all their requirements. And because she did that, our software, I believe, was amazing. Yeah. It's exactly what they wanted. So. Jax was talking to, I don't know, a group of 20 opticians, filtering down what, what they were telling her. She was also reading about being an optician and all the science behind it and all that type of it. And she virtually became an optician. I'm sure if she sat the exam, she could have made it. <laughs> and uh, she was actually feeding those requirements into us as a single point of contact. And it worked brilliantly. So that's kind of the level of product ownership that you need. And, and Jackie uh, Mitchell, a uh, uh, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal absolutely. analyst, product owner. Um, and if people don't know her, look, check her out. She's a real asset to any team. Yeah, I agree. I have no problem recommending Jacks. Um, yeah. You did mention UX though. Um, I did, yeah. UX and developers. I think there is a huge chasm there in the way people think. Right, okay. Um, I have worked with amazing UX people. Could I ever learn to do it? No. Could the majority of developers ever learn to be that good? I don't believe so. Some will be. Yeah. But there is a, a complete separate way of thinking. And if you can do both, fantastic. Yeah. I'd, love, I'd love to learn how you do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in general, UX people think one way, developers think another. One is very... Um, uh, I'm not going to say unstructured, but very um, touchy-feely. Mm -hmm. And they've just got this massive instinct about how things should work. And yeah. developers tend to be very logical. Yeah, yeah. Very much. This does this, this does this, this does this. And in, already you can see the problem in how the two can't really interact. I'm sure it will happen one day. I'm sure as the software industry develops and matures, 
I don't think we're going to see that for a long, long time, though. That, that's, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, the empathy about user experience is, I think, sort mm. of massively. Um, but I, I do still see the, and I'm going to say, screens designed by developers, which tend to be grey with lots of white boxes. They kind of look like a spreadsheet <laughs> with a top and a tail. <laughs> very, very exactly. absolute <laughs> bastard to use and learn. <laughs> exactly where I'm coming from. There, there, there is something magical happens in UX people's minds. It's, yeah. They're great. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm so glad we've got them. <laughs> well, in defense of UX, what a lovely thing to hear. I mean, it doesn't always happen, to be fair. Um, Talking about developers, though, I mean, the way, and you've alluded to this earlier on, is how things were done has changed an awful lot. Mm. Talks about TDD and pairing and what have you. know, have these practices really become mainstream? And, and how are people learning those crafts? Or is it just, it's just so pervasive now, it's just common and, and everybody does it? And um, I'm provocative with that question, as you well know, Chris. Oh, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not ingrained yet. Um, a lot of companies are still at the cargo cult. A lot of developers are still at the cargo cult stage. Um, they are going through the motions. Um, I won't even go on to the whole process side. I'll purely focus on the technical techniques. A lot of people are still doing test-driven, or saying they do test-driven, but they're not writing the test first. They're, doing te- they're writing tests, but not listening to what the tests are telling them. They're writing tests, but not making them expressive so that they actually document the code. Um, and m- many, many, many development teams are saying they are agile, but they are not going back and refactoring their code. Now, That's a state of play at the moment. There there are some very, very good teams out there, and I'm not tarring all the teams with the same brush here. But in general, I'm finding there's a lot of cargo cult going around. Mm. Now, how how can we break out of that? I I think more and more people need to be exposed to good practice and see what it could be like. That's the first aspect of it. Loads of ways we can do this. I offer training in test driven. Um, you've got your coding dojo, haven't you? I'm, I, I'm always happy to run a coding dojo for pretty much anybody. Yeah. Um, and that's just the beginning because that, that helps people see what yeah. and discuss what is possible just with a, solving a very, very simple problem and then comparing it to some equally simple rules, uh, like the, the rules of simple design. Mm. You can, you can very, very rapidly say, oh, actually, no, I'm not writing code like that, am I? Maybe I should start. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one aspect of it. And also you, you've got um, more formal hands-on courses. So Scrum Alliance has got the certified Scrum developer. I've got um, my modern software developer course. Yeah. Um, other people do other things. And so you actually sit down with an experienced practitioner and basically work through a set of well-designed examples. And that will just gradually lead you through the thought process. The advantage of that is because it's a longer period, you're immersed for longer doing it. And you can bring in things like how does test-driven interlink with 
continuous delivery. What yeah. is continuous delivery? Yeah. Um, how does the way you manage uh, version control affect the way things flow? How quick the metric of how quickly can you release? How does that affect your flow? If some if somebody comes to a team and says, "I need this," how does it? How does the speed with which it goes through a team and go live affect the feedback loop? So you know it's the right thing. You're getting um, you're, get, you're getting profit out of it. Yeah. Or is it wasted money? It's just sitting there, waiting to be deployed. Yeah. And so the, the, these three day three day and five day courses can actually help you see that in a safe environment. Yeah. And give you ideas about how to take it back. I think that's a really interesting point because um, I have been interviewing uh, a bit le- uh, lately and um, fortunately the, the, the manager of the, the CTO of the business is very enlightened and he's been very explicit about he wants the TDD refactoring evidence. He wants to see that they're committed, the developers are committed to it. What we had bumped into, though, and I've been interviewed with Paul Bukov, by the way. Uh, our, our oh, brilliant. Say yeah. hello from me. Yeah. <laughs> um, is where... We find people saying, yes, I do TDD, but I don't get to use it very much because people want code quick. Um, so, and quality, I've just done the inverted commas, quality sort of gets sacrificed pretty quickly. So people, management, companies seem to be impatient for refactoring, pairing, TDD, they're not really seeing the value. Now, it's either because, now should, we be, should the coders be standing up more and saying, no, we really, this is the way. Because I said, well, how would they know if you're doing TDD or not, frankly? That was my first question, which nobody could really give me an answer to. Um, but, you know, can we, as a coder who's been doing this for absolutely ages, as an engineer and a trainer of engineers, what's the arguments we should be you know, giving senior managers so they really understand what they're saying yes or no to? And I said, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take your second point first. Um, if you have been employed as a professional software engineer, developer, call the job title what, what you like, the question you need to ask yourself is who defines your professionalism? Who yeah. defines your professional standards? Do you define it or do you, do you let somebody else define it for you? Yeah. yeah. Personally, I define my professional standards if somebody doesn't like it, they have the option to get rid of me yeah. and pull in someone who maybe is a little bit more malleable. Mm. But I'm, I have hugely high standards, and this is how I've got my chartered engineer status. Mm-hmm. And this is why I like to think I'm fairly well respected in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were well known, for sure. Because I'm, I'm prepared to stand up and say, no, I am not going to drop my standards for that. Yeah. Uh, so that's the first question you need to ask yourself. You know, if somebody is saying, don't do TDD or don't test that, who's, who's it going to reflect on? Yeah. You or them? Yeah. yeah. Nine times out of ten, it's a, it's a software developer who released the lousy code. The, that leads me on to the other problem that I, I heard in that question, sort of hidden away in there, <laughs> is the question of, Companies want to use TDD, they want to use refactoring, but they want to see a return on it. Yeah. All these techniques, all these technical techniques are learned. Yeah. They are learned skills. 
And so you really, really need to allow for the learning curve. It's not, an, it's not a silver bullet. None of this is. Mm. Agile isn't. You can't mm. just say, oh, we're going to follow Scrum. Yeah. And your productivity hits 400% hyper-productivity. It's a journey. It's looking at yourself and seeing how things are going, learning, adapting, changing. If you start test driving, it will initially slow you down. Yeah. Because it's something new, you're feeling your way a bit, especially if you're just learning it from a book and not through an experienced practitioner. Even if you're learning it sitting beside someone like myself or loads of other people who've been doing this for, for years, they are still teaching you and, they, and it'll be a little bit slower. Yeah. Refactoring, again, a little bit slower. And also, if you don't have the checks and measures in place, Again, that's going to slow you down again. Yeah. But it's amazing how fast you can churn out code if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. <laughs> yes. You'll, you'll hear people talk about the illusion of control. And this is what companies wanting to drop these practices are suffering from. So if you couple this, Typical scenario I've seen firsthand is we want to go agile. We want to use TDD. Yeah. Bring somebody in for a day, two days, try, train them. Yeah. Okay. We can do that now. Yeah. Oh, it's not going very well, is it? We're slower than we were. Okay. Let, let, let's drop the TDD. Oh, look, our code's going out now. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, these, these iterations aren't, aren't great, are they? We can't deliver anything. Okay, we drop those as well. Uh, instead of a stand-up, though. Um, okay. Oh, we're releasing software to production that doesn't work. Oh, it must be this Agile thing we're doing. I'll drop that completely now. And this, this, is, this is the problem. It's the whole, the entire mechanism is very holistic. Yeah. So you've got the learning curve. You've got to put in place the checks and measures to show that it's improving. And then things start to improve. Until yeah. then, you're sitting at the same old level. And, and, and of course, they improve in a sustainable way. So, you know, how mm -hmm. have we walked into something that's five, ten years old, and the problem is they can't get the releases out. The cost of change has got really hideously expensive. There's more and more people doing less and less work because basically the code base is gunky, overly colonic. Nobody knows what the heck it does. It's got no goddamn test. You can't change it without getting very scared. Yes. And that's the cost, isn't it? That's the cost. Uh, it it's, comes down to the learning curve. Um, you're learning where you are. Yeah. You're learning your level of maturity. I don't, I don't generally believe in maturity models, but there are degrees of um, engineering maturity where people are. You know, you, you've got the, I, I was going to say the Skodas of this world. The Skodas have pulled their socks up since the 80s. <laughs> and then you've got the Ferraris of this world. Uh, unfortunately, you can't take a Reliant Robin, paint it Ferrari red and put it around a racetrack. It doesn't work. <laughs> but you get an awful but, lot in the back. <laughs> <laughs> true. But can you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, exactly. Um, so what, what you need to do is look at where you are. And 
bring in these techniques by all means, but don't blame the technique for revealing that maybe things aren't quite as good as you thought they were. Yeah, yeah. This is starting to stray onto the whole process part of the discussion because these technical, all these techniques, yeah. again, part of, part of a holistic system that tend to sit in an iterative process. Um, yeah. You've got Scrum, Kanban, you can argue is flow-based, but it's a similar idea. You're always pushing mm -hmm. things through mm -hmm. and you're getting fast feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing that is common to all these processes, no matter what they are, you've got crystal, you've got all sorts, is they hold a mirror up against the organization. Yes. They have, you can see where you are. And quite often, it is scary as hell. <laughs> because you realize you aren't where you think you are. Yeah. And this is an important aspect of introducing all these practices you must remember that you are not anywhere near as, um, as advanced as you think you are. Yeah, yeah. So accept it and say, how can I be better? Yeah. What's the smallest step I can take to be better next week or better tomorrow? Yeah. And take it and do it. Yeah. And the following week you say, did that work? Yeah, it's great. We're a little bit better. What can we do to do to be better again? Or even did that work? No, not really. Okay, what can we do instead to be better? And it's the old plan, do, check, act, P PDCA act. Yeah. Or PDCA cycle, sorry. Um, it is gradually improving on all these processes, all these techniques. That's what they're aimed at. Uh, it is interesting. I, I totally agree with you, and, and, and I think it's quite interesting. I've, I've noticed occasionally um, something that's inherently inherently iterative. When mm. I think people plan for the big bang change to agile, and you think that's not the way to do it. You know, don't, don't make your agile transformation a big batch. When naturally, the whole point of agile is fast feedback cycles and, and iterating hard, or as hard as is necessary. Yeah. Um, talking. So we talked about teams and we talked about product owners talk to me about architects and developers um, <laughs> that's evil <laughs> i think you might have an opinion there uh, by the way uh, uh, for the world for anybody who doesn't know chris and i don't think there's no he's got an opinion that's what i would say <laughs> so architects i've I primed the grenade let's go <laughs> i don't know what you mean um the whole Architect and developer separation is now com completely moot point in any software development organization that consider themselves to be effective. Yeah. Um, all developers should have a degree of architecture. Yeah. All architects should be developers. Um, gone are the days where you can successfully do a software design, throw it over the wall and have it succeed. Yeah. Any company who's continuing with that pattern, I think will very rapidly die out now because the smaller companies are realizing they can move faster and more effectively. Mm. Um, now I'm not saying there's no such thing as architecture, but <laughs> the, the new trick companies need to learn is having just enough to make the next release. And by release, I, I, I am 
talking, say, potentially three months in advance. So you oh. know what you're heading for. Okay. But no, no more. Absolutely no more. And even that's pushing the luck a bit. You're better off actually iterating week by week, month by month, because you'll be surprised where you end up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there is no, I don't believe there is any such thing as an architect anymore. They are all developers of varying degrees of competence and, and skill so, level. So, uh, and, and I think you and I and Tom Ayres are doing a podcast together, so that might be an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. It's, it's good fun. It's, it's a good fun discussion, especially when you are having it with a traditional architect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By traditional, it's what, what I was talking about doing a design and throwing it over the wall without any any feedback, whether or not it's actually correct or not. Yeah. I, I shouldn't give this away, but I have worked on a project where many years ago where the architect threw a design across and we released something completely different. And I still don't <laughs> think they realise. <laughs> I think it was Liz Keogh who said to me um, some years back, she said, well, to be honest, Ian, it's the developers who own the architecture anyway, because who puts their hands in it all the time to change it? And I yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. Um, architects should be developing. They should be eating their own dog food. Yeah. So they can see the problems. Okay. Yeah, but they, they should be a senior developer. Well, and I, I, but you do see this though, don't you? That you see, and I noticed this many moons ago in terms of career progression. So if you work mm. in a company, you know, you're ambitious. You sort of come up being developer, developer, senior developer, team lead, and then you have this interesting point of do I go into management, you know, head of software development, or do I become an architect? And it's almost like the more afeard you are of leaving the code behind, you're more likely to go architect. Mm. Um, if you go management, you mm. get a sense of going to hands up. I've, I've noticed that before. Do you think that's still going on? It's definitely still going on. Um, there is definitely, well, definitely. I've been out of permanent employment um, since when I stopped first of their software in 2005. So, you've got me at a slight disadvantage, but I believe it's still happening that there is this perceived glass ceiling for development, pure development. Yeah. Um, now, whether there should be or not, I don't, well, there shouldn't be a glass ceiling, certainly. No, no absolutely not. But at what point does, develop, does, does the responsibility become management? Yeah. Um, Maybe a better term might be, might not be management, but coaching. So yeah. you're actually coaching and mentoring the development teams coming through and the, the people with less experience coming through. Yeah. Definitely. So maybe that will be a better way of handling it. So you're still technical. I'm still technical. Yeah. Um, some, some of the things I'm seeing teams I help do are absolutely incredible. And I'm sort of, picking up books saying, how are you doing that? I'm <laughs> learning from them. Right. We all learn. Exactly. Uh, the, the other modern, something that's happened a lot um, is obviously that word DevOps. Uh, and, mm. you know, I remember many moons ago, there wasn't the tools and there wasn't really the relationship between development and, and ops mm. that I think should have been there. There was still this wall, Chinese wall, separation. Mm separation of concern all that good stuff and then DevOps has just come roaring in and it's I think it's brilliant I wish I had that when I had a real job the things you can do now hmm. um if that changed the role of the developer has that made it bigger and better or is it just 
tools on top of the old relationship? That's an interesting one. Um, again, you're probably talking to the wrong person about that because all the time through my career, I have had to develop code yeah. and also act as my own sysop. Yeah, yeah. And so across the stack, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in Linux and Unix machine management by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I know enough to be dangerous. And the people <laughs> who know me know that. Um, but I have had to manage my own accounts, manage my own um, releases. Yeah. So I've always done DevOps. And, and um, managing your own releases is a good way to well, learn the system, but it's also a good way yeah. to make sure the release is done because you don't want to be on call at yeah. midnight, 1 a.m. For that's right, and I learned that at an early age as well. Um, <laughs> yes, we don't talk about that release. <laughs> um, but yes, it has changed the job, the traditional job of a developer. Yeah. A developer now has to have a very broad skill base yeah. with very deep knowledge in certain areas, be it certain coding languages, be it um, being able to set up a local DNS so that their test systems all work nicely. Um, and it's basically what, uh, I can't remember who originally um, coined the term, but it's a T-shaped people and M-shaped people. Yeah. It, it's all that kind of goodness that we're throwing together now. Yes. Um, oops, there go my glasses. Um, so that's what we're looking at now. It's not difficult to do, but I think today's developer really needs to have a very keen sense of curiosity. Yeah. And also a passion. Because um, yeah. I, I still tinker with code. I mean, I, I said uh, just now that um, I've done a, a small application just to log people into my local. Yeah. Um, and also delete them after 21 days as a government wants. Yeah. Um, I just did that just for the hell of it because it was fun. Yeah. And I'll be converting it to Kotlin and using it to learn Kotlin because I haven't learned Kotlin yet. <laughs> uh, I just switched um, over to Cloudflare for DNS and I realized that it doesn't do dynamic DNS. So I'll be playing with scripts. <laughs> and programming our API just for the hell of it. I, I, I totally agree with I mean, I think the passion and the curiosity, the joy of it, the joy of code. I interviewed someone um, and she's been, she started in mainframes and she's now moving and looking at React, all sorts of things. And you could tell, absolutely tell, she just had the joy and the, the enthusiasm for it all. I thought, what a wonderful journey she's had and still had all that joy for it. I was quite, I was really impressed. I mean, we certainly recommended her for a review. What other qualities do you think of the development? I spoke to Darren um, that's from Spovica, hmm. and he said, I look for problem solvers. When I'm bringing developers, I'm looking for problem solvers. That's what I'm really interested in. I thought that was a really interesting perspective from him. Same for you? Problem solving is obviously very important. Um, this, this comes down to the curiosity as well. Yeah. yeah. And also seeing a challenge and, say, and just niggling away at it. Yeah. I... I I've got a bit, I know that I've got bits of this in me because my wife keeps on telling me. Um, but it's, um, it's that terrier spirit that yeah. you've got something needs doing yeah. and you yeah. just keep on sort of gnawing away at it till it's done. Yeah. Even if you can't work it out at first, you'll go away and come back to it and 
throw it around a bit more and go away and come back to it. That's very important for development. Uh, but the, the, the other part of de developer psyche that is hugely important and it came out, this was actually floated years and years and years ago. I'm actually looking at the book on my uh, shelf over here, The Psychology of Computer Programming. Um, he talks a lot about humility. Jerry Weinberg talks a lot, of, uh, talks a lot about humility yes. in programming and being able to accept that you're wrong and being able to accept, yes, this other person does know more about that subject than you. So being a developer is getting quite a broad subject now. Yeah. Because and I'm, I put all this down to this agility. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, earlier I said that the industry hasn't changed much in terms of the practices, in terms of the processes, and there's a lot of cargo cult. Thinking about it, the attitudes have changed immensely. Developers used to lock themselves away. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And come out with a shrink wrap solution. And this this was what I saw time and again back in the nineties. Yeah. Now it's all about communication. Okay, some of it might be a bit um, clunky. Some of it might be a bit uh, uh, counterproductive. Yeah. But the important thing is, it's starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you look at the more mature industries like like mechanics, um, like chemistry, and other industrial industries like that, you can see that they took a while to actually latch on and actually work out what, how they did what they did. And I do wonder if the software industry is is going through that right now because we are still a very young industry. We are, and I think that people don't realise that. You know, it, it is quite new. Quite is it? Is it an attractive career choice, though? Is it when you're at school and they're doing the O levels, the A levels, and the degrees? Are people think, oh, I want to be a developer? I think so. Um, I can tell you, my daughter definitely didn't think that, and actually, even my son, he said, "No, he said, no, I'm not interested." And he's quite good at math. He's, he's, neither of them went for it at all. Didn't find any interest in it at all. Yeah. Again. It, you, you're, you're talking to somebody who, who's already chosen the path. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's a, you already talked to winner's bias <laughs> in, in person, <laughs> personified. Yeah. Um, it appeals to a certain sort of person. Mm. Um, it appeals to the sort of person who is very focused, very logical. Yeah. And who is interested in how things work. So people like myself, when I was, Actually, even when I was 12, yeah. those sort of people want to know how things work. And I could have gone the mechanics route. I, yeah. I nearly went the electronics route. That, that was what my degree was in. Right, okay. Um, so th those sorts of people will actually focus on these disciplines. I fell into software development accidentally through yeah. the whole chip design because basically you write a program now yeah. which programs the internal chip. Sounds familiar? Yeah. yeah <laughs> but this was a logic chip. This was pure logic gates. Um, so it, is it um, attractive to people? Only a certain type. Yeah. I'm not sure how to fix that. Maybe but yes, I think, I think it's attractive. Though. Well, I, 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 
we'll still need Cody. You, you've mentioned a few books and names as you've been going on. Thinking back, you know, what other books or people have had a bit of a, a big bang on your career or, or more epiphanies as you've been going along? Some of it sounds, a lot of it sounds like you've been self-discovering. Uh, yes, there is one particular book that I'm racking my brains for at the moment because um, it has gone missing off my bookshelf so many times oh. over the years I've been in the industry. <laughs> it was called Software Engineering. Um, I'll have to track down the author for you. Somerville, Somerville Software Engineering, that's him. Right. And that's what introduced me to version control. That's what introduced me to code structure, modularity, all that kind of thing. Uh -huh. So that's where it all started. It's in there. Yeah. And also code complete. Okay. So that's another book that I, again, pulled me in the right direction. And I'm talking about the first edition. <laughs> <laughs> Which are quite depressing, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm recommended readers for the aspiring uh, developer or engineer, software engineer. Craft I, I need I need to get the latest version of Somerville to see if it hasn't gone out of date now. Really? Uh, but no, there's a lot of good stuff in there back in the nineties. Yeah, a lot of things that people weren't using as well. There's nothing new in software development. We've known it all since the sixties. Brilliant. It's just that we've forgotten it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more modern books, you've got the fantastic Growing Object Oriented Software by Freeman and Price. Yeah, yeah. Um, two fantastic guys who have done so much for test driven. And obviously, I can't mention that book without um, Kent Deck's version of it. Again, which I've completely forgotten. Because you put me on the spot. We always put the links at the end of the, the podcast anyway. So. Thank goodness for that. It's called Test Driven Development by Kent Back. Of course. Which is kind of, of a foil to growing object-oriented software. Michael Feathers tends to be a bit of a, a hero in the uh, developer canon. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, he's got a fantastic book about refactoring legacy code. Yes. In fact, I think that's the title. That's yes. well worth a read. Yeah. But the other book that really helped me was um, Martin Fowler's Refactoring. I was going to wonder if Mr. Fowler was going to appear in the... In the, in the he, he's got to. Yeah. He's got yeah. to. I really must get the new edition because it's now in JavaScript rather than C++. And my C++ is very, very rusty now. It's still better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about the past a lot. We've talked about the journey and, uh, and so on. You know... Looking forward, we've seen the power of the cloud. We've seen you know, DevOps tooling. We've seen more modern techniques. We've discussed whether they've got that. What do you see going for? Should we do a little bit of what's going on in the future? No code seems to be getting ever, ever more close. I've been watching that with great interest. Uh, I know Paul Bukoff has been watching it very carefully too. There is no such thing as no code. Who <laughs> writes the engines that generates the code? <laughs> there has to be somebody find the human <laughs> but isn't it to emancipate people like me no code <laughs> low code help, help the idiots who can't code um, but I remember back in the late 90s 2000s there was a big move to convert UML 
into code. Yeah, oh, oh yes, yes, I remember that. It was awful. It fell flat on its face. Yeah. And this no-code effort is going to do the same. I, I have used tools where you've got just drag and drop and you design yeah. the software using a drag and drop interface. I've seen people do the same and it just ends up a complete untestable mess. It becomes extremely unpredictable very rapidly. Yeah. Um, we are a long way off being able to even begin to consider no code apart from the simplest of simple problems. Yeah. yeah. So a, another good reason, to, uh, if you're wondering what to do for uh, your career, keep your code, you're, you're going to be in high demand. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, quite recently there was discussion whether or not to relearn COBOL. God damn, really? Because suddenly no, all, all the COBOL programmers are basically so old they're, they're actually retiring and dying. So yeah, there's yeah. very, very few COBOL developers. Yeah. The banks, especially in the States, but also in the UK, have a huge number of COBOL systems that are untested because they come from an era where it's all waterfall. Yeah. Nobody tested apart from manually and when it rolled out. Yeah. So if you change it, you've got to go through all the tests again. Um, and I've certainly done some research into whether or not we can apply modern techniques to it. Oh, really? And? Yes, you can. There yeah. is a COBOL unit. <laughs> and you can refactor them you can make them testable you can make them so that you can continuously deliver or something approaching continuous delivering continuous in integrate brilliant they need some refactoring they need some legacy code love but it is possible so 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 in summary after this conversation starting pre-agile the future's cobalt you heard it here first. Possibly. <laughs> it's a scary thought, isn't it? Software has a habit of hanging around. It does. Especially the, the software systems that are running larger yeah. Yeah. economies. Yeah. And so the software you write today could well be, a, be around in 50 years. Absolutely. Unless it's my Apple phone. God knows what's going to be in my Apple years. Well, it, Hardware's churning quite well, but no, yeah. the big systems tend to stick around. No, absolutely. So, absolutely. so all this Java, all this COBOL, and dare I say, all this JavaScript yeah. has the potential yeah. to be around in 50 years. Bear that in mind when you're writing it. So, yeah, someone, um, something about, someone said JavaScript, it won't go away. It's like a cockroach. And I thought, <laughs> interesting. So the future is COBOL mixed with JavaScript, but we can still pair TDD and refactor. Chris, it's been a joy talking to you. It's lovely to talk to uh, a guy who actually gets their hands on the ones and zeros for real, rather than talking about people and orchestrating people who put their hands on the ones and zeros. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, when we're out of the pandemic lockdown, we will get to enjoy. I, I fancy a pint of wherry, but you know, anything real and pleasant, I'm happy to, to sup on. Yep. Chris, thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to the, today's podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with uh, myself or Chris, 
Chris is a great trainer and uh, mentor for coding teams as well. You can catch us on LinkedIn. You can contact us directly or you can contact me at uh, agilitybynature.com. Agility Chris is also on our website there and you can find him at the Thirsty Bear Solutions. Um, Chris and I are now going to go off. I'm possibly got a red wine in my waiting um, and I suspect you've got something nice and fun. I, I, I have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Chris. Take care. See you soon. Thanks very much again. Cheers. Cheers.